Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another special guest with me, Dr. Brant Bosserman. Uh, Dr. Bosserman did his PhD work on Trinity and uh, the Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox, an interpretation and refinement of the theological apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. And so, uh, as many of my listeners know, I am a Vantillian all, all the way through and through. I love me some Vantill, so this is going to be an extra special uh, episode here. Uh, Dr. Bosserman is a church planner and head pastor of Trinitas Church in Mill Creek, Washington, uh, just north of Seattle. He's been doing that since 2013, and uh, I'm really grateful that he came on uh, and made some time for me in this crazy busy schedule uh, to talk about the Trinity, to talk about God, to talk about Vantill. And uh, so this is going to be a, a ph- philosophical endeavor, and it's going to be getting into the Trinity. So buckle in, folks. It's going to be wild uh, as Dr. Bossman uh, lays things out for us in clear fashion, just like he does in this book. So uh, real quick, just want to plug this book. Go grab it. Check it out. It is called The Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox. And if you are a Van Til guy at all, you already know about it. And if you don't, then you've been messing up. So go get that book. Check it out. Dr. Bossman, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about your PhD. And I was just, um, you did your PhD work uh, at Bangor University in Wales. How did you get someone to sign off on doing a PhD in, in Van Til studies, basically? Yeah, it, it really was not easy. Um Let's see. You know, I had kind of an initial advisor who who vetted the general thesis, but then then you have an you tend to have a more specialized ad, of advisor who comes alongside of you along the way and really intimately gets into your business. And so, um, the initial advisor looked at it, and, and and I was able to sell him on the basic concept, the basic idea, um, but he didn't really have to um, you know walk step by step with me through it. Now. My, my primary advisor, the one who really came alongside of me the whole way through, I must have spent the first year of my PhD writing 10 to 1 more to convince my advisor that Van Til wasn't insane uh, than <laughs> that uh, any actual, you know, progress, progress on my thesis. And um, part of what made it so unique is that it was with a university where um, th- there was no great school of Antillian thought. And um, therefore, on the front end, it required me to, to really sell the thesis. I think the benefit of it, though, was that um, there is a real challenge and mandate to me to write about Van Til with a sort of clarity that an outsider could appreciate. Hmm. And, and perhaps if I would have been writing in the context of, you know, a classic, you know, hub of Antillian thought, I might get away with, um, you know, throwing around Vantillian terminology carelessly, expecting that my audience would necessarily understand what the heck I was talking about. Whereas there, I certainly didn't have that sense. 
And so it turned out to be for the better. Uh, I think it made for the better thesis in the long run. And um, I'm just super grateful to them for, for taking me on. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that's awesome. Uh, I've had a similar experience, though, uh, not as intense as yours, but being here at, uh, at TED's, um, there are no Vantillians. And so anytime I want to use Vantill in a paper, which I try to do every paper, C.S. Lewis and Vantill, got to stuff them in there. Uh, everyone likes C.S. Lewis. Nobody likes Vantill. And so I have to go out of my way to really cl- uh, make things clear. And a lot of times, like you said, it, it's a refining process for myself. Do I even know what I'm talking about in using mm-hmm. some of this language? Do I know it well enough to communicate it and then communicate it to uh, Dr. Uh, Harold Netlin, who is going to try and shred this as bad as he can. And so it's been a really good process for me, but uh, I'm curious, how did you get involved in, um, in Cornelius Van Til at all, his, his theology philosophy, and then so much so that you were willing to take all this extra time to convince someone that this would make a good dissertation? Well, I'll speak to the latter part of the question first. Yeah. Part of it was I really didn't have another option for where to do my dissertation. <laughs> Therefore, I really had to hang on to this one. At the time, I was I was involved in a, a church in the Seattle area and, um, you know, hoping to be on staff there, hoping to work there. And I really needed to stay in Seattle. Well, there's nowhere to get a Ph.D. in Seattle in this sort of realm of study. And just through a weird chain of events, I got hooked up with a a distance PhD program through the university of Wales. And um, it was even worked out so that my advisor would actually fly to Seattle because he liked to come to Seattle as opposed to me having to fly out there. That's a very rare thing. Mm. Whereas, Mm. and then finally at the very end of it, when I um, did the oral defense of the thesis, it was the first time I set foot on the, the Welsh campus and it was a bit surreal because it's big, huge campus and, you know, beautiful buildings and old, you know, super old, you know, structures and things like that. Um, so that, that's kind of why I, I stuck with that course and, and rolled with the punches of trying to get through it. But as for how I got into the until, um, I mean, it really goes fairly deep into my story. You know, my, my dad was raised Roman Catholic, and then his my grandfather brought my dad and, and really the greater part of his family into uh, the fourth largest cult in America at the time, which was the Worldwide Church of God under Herbert W. Armstrong. Hmm. And um, so the thing is, I was born into this world with um, robust theological debate going on at all times because my dad's twin brother stayed in that that cult, and my dad you know, became... A, uh, a a Christian, an Orthodox Christian, not Eastern Orthodox, but Orthodox in the in the broad sense. And so, apolog- apologetic discussion and surrounding the Trinity was live and real um, throughout my childhood. Um, a very, very consequential, meaningful thing. Um, and so, most of the apologetics I did in my youth, and we did it a lot, was. Um, you know, debating with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, even calling, you know, the hotline to get a free book of Mormon so that they would come to your door when you'd be ready to go locked in wow. line. <laughs> oh, oh, no, we did it all the time. And um, when my big brother was kind of, I mean, he was the, um, he was the young theologian of the family and really the intellectual. I mean, if, it, if you would have asked anyone in our youth who would go on to get a PhD, they all would have said my older brother. Hmm. My brother was about 18. Um, he he abandoned the faith 
and for me, so he's just a year older than me. So I was 17 and, um, it was really, really distressing for me. And, um, you know, it was a different sort of apologetic dealing with someone who, who's, you know, claiming not believe in God at all versus, you know, dealing with, um, you know, aberrant Christian systems. And so naturally, though, given our background, I launched straight into doing the classical and evidentialist apologetic with my brother. And the fact is, if, if you've really ever met just a truly, um, <laughs> a truly committed and um, over the top atheist. I mean, you know that any piece of evidence that you give them will be like a sheet from a newspaper that they crumple up in their hand and throw over their shoulder again and again and again and again. Because once you approach the evidence with a supreme sort of skepticism, almost a religious skepticism, um, you can't penetrate that with more evidence. You just, you can't. And so I would always leave my conversations with my brother feeling defeated, feeling as if I've just, I totally failed at defending the faith. And I, and maybe in certain respects, you could say I did. Um, and yet I noticed I never really felt my faith in Christ shaken at all. I mean, it was distressing that he wasn't budging, but that's when I, um, when I encountered for the first time, uh, until's apologetic, um, first, just the classic book, The Defense of the Faith. Hmm. And I remember reading it vigorously because he kept talking about this argument for the Christian faith, which is this knockdown, you know, uh, winner takes all sort of an argument. And I remember getting to the end of the book going, where was the argument? What were you talking about? And so I really, I took that book and kind of tossed it over my shoulder. Um, but then, you know, got exposed to the classic uh, Bonson-Stein debate. And then it started to make quite a bit more sense as to what Vintil was getting at. And I remember I put, picked up Vintil's Defense of the Faith again, and um, it it started to make more sense. It really wasn't until I, I picked it up for the third time that it really was as if the light completely went off, uh, went on for me, that um, – that my brother was not a neutral observer of the facts mm-hmm. that he actually has a worldview too, that he's never brought to bear his own uh, diehard skepticism to. He has all of these beliefs and all of these presuppositions as well. And that my job as the apologist is actually to, well, to use Schaefer's language to rip the roof off of, um, of his house for his worldview for a bit that he could be get, feel the rain, feel the elements for a moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, feel the need to enter another. And I, I suppose I should really throw Schaefer in there too. I actually discovered Francis Schaefer first. And, you know, I was just getting exposed to this way of thinking a bit more, but once, once it did, it hit really hard and um, I never uh, turned back. Wow. Yeah. That, that's awesome. I've learned uh, uh, similar things from, uh, so C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaefer, uh, Van Til, I, had a, I had a similar experience with Van Til's uh, Defense of the Faith, but I had the footnotes. So I, I was uh, fortunate enough to have all those, and that, that was really helpful. But it was once I got to uh, Intro to Systematic Theology, uh, and, and where I, I saw the Transcendental Language a little bit more, Survey of Christian Knowledge. And then I that with C.S. Lewis, I know in, in a lot of circles, um, those two do not go together at all. But I think C.S. Lewis's miracles, I got, I got this from John Frame, who said that those are similar, but 
Uh, it's seeing, I just see Van Til as the teacher and Lewis as the practitioner. And though the two probably would not have gotten along very well, uh, they both are, are going at this idea of facts and saying, uh, well, they're, they're looking at worldviews and stuff like that, too. They're looking at reason and argument. But the facts is so was so helpful for me in saying, you know, uh, uh, Van Til says, you know, I, would, I, I wouldn't offer facts, facts and more facts without ever challenging their philosophy of fact. And Lewis does something similar in the, the first chapter of Miracles. And um, I love that because it's exactly what you said. I think a lot of us had the similar experience of getting frustrated saying like, well, how about this? How about the, the complexity of the human eye? Or let's talk about the, right. the tympanic membrane and all this stuff. And they go, yeah, but here's a different explanation for it. And then you just go, well, how about explanation itself? And we're, we're, Can you explain explanation to me? Because I, in my worldview, it makes sense. How about you? And then just kind of throwing down the gauntlet, going full Van Til on them and saying, well, explain it for me. I'll, I'll do my job too. I'll explain it, but can you explain it for me? And, that's where I've seen a lot of the power of it. And so um, moving into uh, a little bit more of your constructive work uh, in Van Til, um, the, the transcendental argument. And so uh, in your book, you say the transcendental argument from and for the Trinity. And this is why your work has been so influential in, in these Van Tilian circles. Hopefully it, it gets me on there too, or has been getting on there be, uh, beyond there too. But yeah. to talk specifically about the Trinity in your apologetic is a little bit scary. For a lot of folks, you know, we'll talk Trinity in uh, Sunday school, maybe, and we'll just talk about how, how scary it is. But you're saying you're going to put that in your apologetic. That's crazy. And so that's why I, I love it. it's the right there on the cover of your book, the Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox. So um, I guess getting into your work, can you explain the the problem of the one and the many to us? so We can get situated here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem of the one and the many is arguably one of the most pervasive. I mean, it's not even arguably. It, it's clearly one of the most pervasive problems spanning every realm of philosophy. And, and almost every philosophical difficulty can really be interpreted or understood in light of it. And so I'll begin by trying to describe the problem with one of the many in, in really pr- a practical sphere. And then I'll, I'll try to move to discussing it in metaphysics and epistemology and other things. But practically, I mean, look at us right now. We're in the midst of a heated presidential election recount, you name it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this raises a really distressing question. I mean, you just ask yourself if you or your neighbor find this particular season distressing. It raises the question as to whether there's any individual candidate combined with a platform and policies, not to mention, um, you know, a grace of communication and a personality that's likable, all of those things that could not only appeal to, say, every one of the 300 million people in America, but actually do justice to their individual interests and pursuits and personal freedoms. Is that even possible? I mean, we, we experience the distress right now of, of feeling a country, you know, totally divided. And see, this is a problem of the one in the many. Hmm. Is there a one, an individual who can represent the collective, the whole, but in such a way that his governance and his policies don't do violence to a substantial portion of the many in the population? Is that is it possible to somehow gain, gain a balance between these two things in the political sphere and in your day-to-day life? Um, or is it, such, is it such that, is the reality such that, 
the multiplicity of different individuals and subcultures and you name it will always war with one another for their rights and their particular needs and their claims being heard because the only way to to get them heard is to have them heard over and above your neighbors uh, is the many such a chaotic ocean of ideas and individual pursuits that you know it really can't ever be contained meaningfully in in one whole or one society so this is the, the one in the many problem and it, it's a very practical thing and um obviously in the course of human history seeing as wars have not ceased you know, political intrigue and ambition and, you know, infighting has not ceased. Um, We as a human race haven't been able to answer this question to our satisfaction. We might have seasons where we're relatively happy with the world that we live in, but there probably is someone in our society who's not so happy with it. And and what's the problem? How do we ever strike a harmony um, in, in, in these spheres? And I should just mention, you know, Practically, the world, the postmodern world we live in, they've all but admitted that it's entirely impossible to ever uh, achieve some sort of balance. Um, it's a, it's a neo-Marxist, uh, post-Marxist sort of philosophy, which sees the battle between the upper class and the lower classes is characteristic of all societies, but doesn't posit a utopian uh, solution that's that's one day going to be realized. Yeah. So. Yeah. So what does it mean to, to live in a postmodern world? The just and righteous thing to do is to always topple the people at top, their language, their power, you name it, and displace it with the people who are at the bottom who are destined to be just as tyrannical once they, they obtain power. Right. And it's right. a really depressing view of things if you've come to that conclusion that, no, there's never going to be a harmony between the one and the many. There's only going to be war between them. So that's that's a practical realm in which you see it. Um, thinking more metaphysically, it, it it touches on questions like what is real? Are only individual things real, or are universals and forms and essences real? Uh, we see this in the most in the most undeniable ways in our society today. When we ask, is maleness something that is real and objective and um, unchanging? Or is it nothing at all but a cultural construct that we're imposing on people who happen to have similar organs? And it's there's not there's no uh, there's no real maleness beyond that. Um, that's an instance where we'd say: Is there a an unchanging one, a one unchanging universal that somehow makes an appearance in, or it belongs to? a multiplicity of, of, of different living things, in this case, men. Um, or, is it, or is it the case that to, to speak that way does violence to those individuals, to call them a man um, and to assume that childbirth, that they are, are male? I mean, my wife is a labor and delivery nurse, and it's <laughs> the universe we live in is very different than, than what it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. You, you have to make sure that, that people want you to call their child any gender hmm. um, b- before you can refer to them that way. Fortunately, the vast majority of people still do, but it's a touchy subject. And so again, you know, these are the sorts of questions that, that the, the one in the many pertains to. And um, it has the most practical bearing imaginable, whether you're doing violence to people, the way that you speak um, in the realm of epistemology, 
I mean, you have, you know, similar sorts of, of questions that arise, you know, what does it mean to, um, to, 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 to give a true description of something? Uh, how is simply calling something by its name, uh, a true description of it, or does that really refer to a multiplicity of linguistic connections that any given word has and connotations and you name it? Um, that, that again is, is a question about whether or not truth can be spoken, you know, discreetly, whether it's just a matter of correspondence between a word, its definition and a fact, or whether or not truth is perhaps a matter of coherence and, um, uh, the meaning of a given word in a network of, uh, of linguistic meanings, hence, you know, an appeal to a larger many. So this problem, this question arises everywhere. Mm-hmm. How do we relate, uh, collectives to individuals, universals to particulars, um, the one to the many. That's, that's the question. And um, arguably all of humanity has been dealing with that problem uh, forever. Yeah. 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 I, I love the, uh, the practical aspect that you bring in. Um, it's so helpful for, for me. Uh, I, I wrote a paper last semester on uh, Trinitarian Mysterianism and trying to use Bavink and, and Van Til to kind of, uh, to answer this question. And, um, so I, I did a little bit of work of trying to show uh, modern that, that this is a modern topic in philosophy too, because sometimes you bring that up and they go, Oh, you know, that's like pre-Socratics or like, yeah, maybe Plato dealt with that in the forums, but no, it's, it's here today too. Uh, Donald Davidson talks about, you know, the, the great fact. And so you can say, well, is, is there one fact or are there m- many facts? Is there one unifying? And so there's fact monists and there's fact particularists and, Susan Hack, uh, in her philosophy of logics, talks about uh, logic and logics, and there's monists and there's pluralists in there too. And uh, just yeah. it's it's a modern day thing. My, uh, Michael Lux, Thomas Chris talk about the the problem of the many, and they talk about clouds. And, and uh, this comes up in in Muriology, which is another topic. So it's not just for the ancients. And this is why I'm so excited to see it coming back. It, it's never left. Just like you said, it's in all of our daily stuff. And then. For for the uh, millennial listeners like myself, but uh, for all the the dog lovers out there, like there's dog and there's your dog. There's this concept of dog ness that's like this abstract, and then there it applies to your dog, which is different than my dog, which is different. Like it's it's everywhere we look, and once you start to see it, it's crazy how it pops up. But then the, right. the problem is, you know what? Which one's more fu- uh, fundamental? Which one's foundational? Is everything one? Is everything many? And then that's where where you bring up, uh, you you start fleshing out Van Til's answer to that problem. So I wonder if we could just uh, if we could you go there. Or do you want to back? Yeah. The, back the vast majority of people want to say that somehow there is both a one and a many. And mm-hmm. so even beyond the question of of you know whether or not everything is ultimately one or many, then then the question becomes. How can the two really meaningfully relate? <laughs> what does it mean for them to relate? If there is a universal as to what dog is, you know, how does it how does it manifest itself in an individual dog which has specific characteristics without you know being compromised or, or that form being stained by that particularity or or ruined in some way? You might say. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, I mean, it's the question of you know which one is primary. And how do they relate meaningfully um, such that neither does violence to the other? Yeah, yeah. that's helpful. So um, cool. I, uh, another thing we might need to, uh, to kind of flesh out before we before we get into the, the Trinity as the answer is uh, concrete 
abstract, uh, universal, and uh, particular, I guess. Uh, be, yeah, can can you flesh those out first, and then explain how uh, yeah. why Van Til and and you and and I would would say that the Trinity is a concrete universal. Yeah, Parker. Let me let me put one more note out there before we go and yeah, start please. with concrete universal. I want to really emphasize that um, one really important question is um, why is it that the one in the many problem is a problem? Hmm. Uh, because in fact, I mean, we should be really clear from the get go: the one in the many dynamic, you might call it, is exactly what makes life something uh, so enjoyable. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. You know, when you play a good game, um, a good game is a game where you can develop a strategy that you do again and again. You might call it, you know, one strategy on the game. But at the same time, a good game is going to have an element of randomness that you can't control entirely. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a game so much as it would just be a clash of, you know, t- you know two different masteries of a strategy good game that's going to make you laugh and get a bunch of people involved and, and, and make for a fun time is one that has, um, you might call it a, a, a diversity and an unexpected element that can you know, produce results that no one was expecting. And it's the role of a dice, you know, if you're playing risk or access and allies, despite your strategy, that's, you know, somehow letting the other guy stay in the game. Hmm. Um, this is what makes life enjoyable. You know, when you, you live in the world, you want the world to be sufficiently normal so that you can get around in it, but you don't want the same monotonous day over and over again. And it's to your liking that there are places in this world that you've never seen before, that there are sunsets that diversify the day, that there are people you might bump into um, along the way that are totally different. This is what makes life utterly joyful. And so before we understand the problem of it because it also makes life either really monotonous and annoying and frustrating or so chaotic that you can't make your way in it. We have to appreciate that this is something we love because part of understanding the Trinity is the solution to it is understanding that this is built into the world because of, of the, the sort of God who created it. So I just, I wanted to get that in uh, from the get-go, but you wanted to move on to the question of what a concrete universal is, correct? Yeah, and, and I appreciate you doing that. That's really helpful uh, to see that this is a problem, but it's not one that's like worth trying to get rid of because it that's where all the, the juice of life is found. Yeah, so uh, yeah, getting in uh, to, you know, concrete and universal, uh, uh, particular, and uh, whatever the fourth one is, I forgot. Yeah, so a concrete universal, what we mean when we speak about something like that is we mean um, a situation where... Hold on, I just want to get my notes. So I'm. Uh... Oh, so abstract. So abstract and concrete. Those are those are uh, complementary or, or contraries, and then yeah. universal in particular. Yeah. Yes. Right. So you think about an abstract universal, and that would be something like a definition that you know floats in the air and never changes. That um, is complete and finished. And 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 the thing about an abstract universal is that. Time can't add anything to it. Uh, the, the passage of events can't change it, but it also can't grow it. And so in that sense, it's lifeless. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Um, 
and, and the other term you wanted me to contrast, so we did concrete and universal, excuse me, concrete and abstract, and then you wanted to do universal in particular. Yeah. Well, normally you'd think of the universal as being exactly that sort of thing, an abstraction. Mm-hmm. So if you think of um, a universal definition of, of man as, you know, rational animal or something, again, it's just, it's a timeless and in many respects, lifeless definition that never changes. So we tend to think of abstracts and universals as being a pair. A concretes in particular, as we think of as being a pair, being a common, um, something that's concrete is something that we tend to think of as, you know, you can reach out and touch it. It's tangible. Um, and particulars, like particular men and women, um, they differ from an abstract form or, or definition of, of humanity in that they have distinct relations, sizes and shapes and interests and vocations and family relations and all of those things. Um, and, and, and so we'd note that through the passage of time, these sorts of things, um, they grow, they change, they diminish, they do all sorts of interesting things. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, n- not one of us really <laughs> wants to be strictly abstract or strictly concrete. I mean, we think about you, Parker. I mean, you can think about yourself in a way as, as being a timeless soul hmm. who simply is what he is, what he is, such that your life, your language, your growing interests, your experiences, your education, your spouse, your children, your crimes, none of that does anything to alter you, to add to you, to change you. And you think about it. I mean, if you think about yourself as, as an abstract soul, uh, so utterly impervious to the life that you live and unchanged by the life that you live, it really leads to one of two conclusions as the early Gnostic heretics uh, really came to conclude. Um, It either means that nothing you do in your body matters at all. Any sort of indulgence and sin, any sort of just deceptive behavior, all of it, those are just things you did. They're not really you. You're just you. You've, You've stayed you the whole time. And it, none of those things have any bearing on you at all. Hmm. So it can lead to a totally, you know, as theologians would say, antinomian view of, of reality. Whereas you know, your, your, your soul is so settled. Hold on, Parker. I just, did I lose you? No, no. I, didn't. I just, I thought I clicked this off. But, but that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is it's just utterly depressing. Um, what the heck is the point? of any of this life that you're living? What is the point of anything that we're doing? And I mean, there are any number of philosophies that loan themselves to the idea that either suicide or, I mean, really, well, why not just try to escape this realm of um, time? And if you are kind of like a timeless drop of eternity, um, why play this game? Um, So you can think about what a depressing worldview would be to view yourself as a strictly abstract universal this sort of unchanging thing on the other hand viewing yourself as nothing at all but a concrete particular with no real essence or soul that binds it all together one is really left with an equally depressing view of of reality i mean if if park is is a being who entered the world a blank slate um maybe a next to nothing um, it, but still somehow something when you came into the world, perhaps beyond, you know, what traits you were given by your genome, um, then you're, you're, you're a concrete something. You're sh- surely not a timeless soul, but, um, 
What does it ever mean to make something of yourself? Is there an enduring self in right. you right. at all? Are you just natter in motion with a series of, of thoughts, kind of like chasing Christmas lights, where really no thought is the same continuous being after the other. It's just one light popping into being after another that presents the illusion to others and even to your, again, you know, a broken consciousness that you're a consistent consciousness. I mean, Hume played with all of these sorts of ideas. And I mean, his, his skepticism uh, surely led to this sort of idea that it was an open possibility that that's exactly what we, what we are. Um, you're really kind of left with the exact same problem. What does it mean to make something of yourself? If you accomplish something great, that's not Parker. That was, that was Parker two years ago. Um, that was right. matter in motion that is being replaced by the minute all the time. I mean, right, is it the right. same? I love you that. Know. It's it's not even the same matter. I, I love, uh, I helped co-teach a uh, intro to philosophy course and, uh, you know, just think about ship of Theseus, right? And this one's my, this side's my favorite uh, of, of the two, you know, the concrete, because you can just look up uh, every seven years or whatever to, to, to 12 years, like your all your cells are different. So in what sense are you the same you? But then also when you have a new thought, like now you've had more information or if you forget something, now my different thing, what are you and who are you? You don't get to claim anything for yourself. And you're just this hodgepodge of there's no continuity of the self over time. That's right. That's exactly right. And and so either of those are, are pretty unbearable thoughts about mm -hmm. what we are. I mean, they, they're rather depressing thoughts. And honestly, they're thoughts that in a way allows people you to take this square into the realm of ethics would allow people to uh, really have no responsibility for anything they did, much less glory for anything that they did. Um, because either there's a you that, that never really does anything because it's an abstraction and, or there's a you that is ne not even the same you from one second to the next. And, you know, the fact is, is that there are a lot of thinkers who really get this. And, and start forming a worldview on the basis of this. I think of B.F. Skinner's Beyond Freedom and Dignity, where no one is really responsible for any of the ill behavior that they have in society. Really, society's more responsible for it, for having made you. And there, you know, the concept of the collective is so strong, the, the social one, there, there really is no responsible individual. No, at all. And, that, and that social one is made up of individuals, but you don't want to say that either. And that's actually a view I think Sam Harris holds. When you, when you start talking about the individual and it just totally just responsibility dis, disappears crazy. Right. So all that said, when we speak about a concrete universal, I, I dare say that it's, it's pretty close to what, you know, living, breathing human beings all kind of want to be. We mm -hmm. want to be both a continuous someone um, who has a real self, but a self that grows and, and develops and, for whom the decisions that that self makes actually contributes to uh, the growth and the change and the alteration of that self in profound and deep ways. And uh, so, so at the end of the day, that's, that's what people are, are hoping for, what they're looking for. And I think, you know, if you ask people in general, yeah, it's like we want a society that both, you know, honors the, the will of the collective and the individual. It's like, I mean, I don't really know a lot of people who'd come out and say, fundamentally, I care not one bit about the individual. I mean, you've really left to the most extreme sort of Marxist revolutionary when you've gotten to that point mm -hmm. or, or an individual who is 
so disconcerned about society that, you know, the, the heck with them all, you know, society, it's just really, we're all trying to find and to achieve some sort of, um, you know, balance and all of that. But of course we can't because we're sinners and we have, um, we have uh, parted ways with, with the one Lord and the one God who can, can help us in this respect. And that brings us to what we mean when we talk about the Trinity solving the one many problem and um, what it means to speak about him as a solution. So do you want me to go there? Uh, yeah, please. Let's, let's jump right in. So there are three ways in which we can figure out the Trinity as the um, solution to the problem of the one and the many. Um, you know, we, we would begin by speaking of the Trinity himself as a concrete universal. And what we mean by this is that God is in the, the most true sense, in the absolute sense, a, a concrete universal, because within God, there is a particularity in the three persons of the Trinity. But those three persons, you know, as the Nicene def- definition of the Trinity so well represents scripture, um, those three persons are one in the same self-identical divine being. Now, this is a profound mystery. Our minds can never fully comprehend, you know, just how deep and how profound this is. But what this means is that each of the three persons of the Trinity gives absolutely perfect and exhaustive expression to the entire divine essence, all that God is in each person of the Trinity. And yet each person of the Trinity is distinct from the others. They don't simply dissolve into one another. They're distinct co-eternal persons. Mm -hmm. And we would say that the entire inter-Trinitarian dynamic or perichoresis of the three persons is itself perfectly expressive of the essence of each individual. And each individual is perfectly expressive of that dynamic that they share between one another. We could say it this way, God, who's absolutely infinite and complete within himself, is at the same time absolutely and eternally fresh to himself Hmm. in the way that we think of particularity um, and and the freshness of life and the newness of life um, in our our existence as as, uh, concrete universals made in the image of God. Well, for God, God is at once absolutely whole and complete and you could say finished and yet infinitely fresh and infinitely at each moment in the dance of the life of the trinity you could say yeah. is itself an utterly unique totally irreducible totally uh excellent and wonderful in itself moment that um that is just preceded by and followed by and yet infinitely completely um, a, a, a fresh life in, 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 in himself. And so I think, you know, emphasizing, you know, the attribute of God that he's, he's living is, is so important because he's not an abstract universal. Yeah. He's not uh, causally inert or yeah. And yet he's also immutable. So he's not a living open-ended uh, concrete um, that's just, you know, waiting, waiting through the, the surprises of time. Hmm. And, And so this is what it means when we speak about God as the concrete universal. And so when we go back to the one many problem, there are three ways in which I think it's meaningful to talk about God as the solution to it. The first thing is we look around and we go, why is reality marked by unity and diversity? 
everybody has to, why is that the case? Where did it come from? You know, for the atheist at the end of the day, or for, I w- I'll say at the end of the day, the non-Trinitarian, the answer is really, I, I beats me, I don't know why there is this, this interface between these two remarkably different and yet mutually necessary things. And the answer for us as Trinitarians as to why reality is the way it is, is because it's made by the triune God. It's inspired by nothing at all but the triune God's self-knowledge of himself. There's nothing else by which he could be inspired. And therefore, this creation necessarily, it cannot possibly do anything but be an an analog to and 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 um, uh, in many different respects, uh, reveal the universe, the unity and diversity of the creator who made it. And so we start there, that, that the reality is as it is because it's made uh, by the triune God. And in, in, in that respect, he, he makes sense of something that is so pervasive. In fact, everything always, all the time points us back to this God who is the epitome of, of union between uni- universe, unity and diversity. Mm-hmm. And, and all of our life in this world is a life of overlap of unity and diversity. And so we're going to say that um, everybody knows this triune God. He's inescapably known because you could say he's the, the only atmosphere within whom the uni- unity and diversity of, of our experience um, has any explanation whatsoever. Um and so go ahead, Parker. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. So uh, there's so many so many trails we could run on, but just uh, immediately thinking of uh, so so like Aquinas would say that God's uh, existence can be can be demonstrated from uh, general revelation, but his trinitarianness that's that needs to be reserved for for uh, special revelation, divine revelation. So in in the Bible, and so I'm wondering, um, we see unity and diversity out uh you know it's on our coins e pluribus unum right out of out of plurality uh unity uh it's on our coins we see it all over the place that's what we want that's like uh, racial reconciliation that's the whole uh the whole point behind there is that we're not uniform and we shouldn't aim for uniformity but we should aim for unity uh diversity and unity and so we see it all over there fingerprints of this god who is equally ultimate uh who in in whom uh, unity and diversity is equally ultimate. One's not more foundational than the other. They're they're both in perfect unity because he's one God, three persons. Does his Trinitarian fingerprints on reality, that unity and diversity that we find, does that bring us to knowledge of the Trinity or to a uh, God who is? It, yeah, what do we do with that? I guess. Yeah. Well, first, I want to I'm going to note this. For us as, as, as Vantillians, we're not even saying that man looks about himself and sees universe, unity and diversity and infers there must be an ultimate unity and mm. diversity. Okay. Quite to the contrary. What we're saying is this. The unity and the diversity of this world cannot explain, neither one of them, how it is that they meaningfully overlap, interact, and, and mutually define one another. Mm-hmm. That is to say, reason alone cannot furnish us with a proof that reason uh, rightly describes how the world round about us works. Yeah. That's to say yeah. 
logic within itself, there is no axiom of logic that says in these logical laws of thought accurately describe reality outside of you. Right. You, you can't, you can't, there, there, that doesn't, you can't get there from pure rational. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you had people like Descartes and Spinoza who were significantly more confident perhaps that you could, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but my point is, is that reason and reality subjects and objects. I mean, these are all different aspects of the one many problem cannot build a bridge to one another from themselves. And yet they overlap. And so what we're actually going to say is that the universe unity and diversity of this world is manifestly within the atmosphere and within the sovereign providential hands of a power that is neither, neither the material realm that, that within within which we live nor the ideal realm that we bring to bear on it we are always living and moving and breathing and swimming not just in the unity and diversity of creation but in the sovereign hands of the god who you might say holds those two things together those two parts of a sandwich together that neither part can I- explain how it holds itself together that way and so it, it, we're not just talking about knowing God by uh, by way of some sort of inference. We know God as immediately as we know ourselves, as immediately as, as we think any thought about ourselves or anything around us. We immediately know the God who is holding all things together. And the only reason we don't acknowledge him as such is because we are hopelessly uh, enslaved to our own sinful rebellion and cannot rise up above that by our own efforts or labors. So I, I hope the distinction is clear there when you bring up Aquinas. What I'm coming back to you and saying is, uh, no, to the contrary, John Calvin, um, uh, man's knowledge of himself and his, his knowledge of God um, are equally ultimate in the consciousness of man. Um, I, I, it, I mean, one has it, it has more bearing power over everything we say and do, which is our knowledge of God. But we know them both together and right at once. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's super helpful. Uh, and and uh, if anyone's interested in that, that's uh, Calvin's Institutes, Book One. Um, I, I think Van Til does does a really good job in a in a less known analogy about a diving board. Uh, I think it's in Survey of Christian Epistemology. And so you you start in the just you're in existence, whatever you look down and you're on a, a diving board and that's kind of your proximate starting point. And that's like man's knowledge of himself. But immediately you look around, you're, you're the diving board's not floating. You look back and you see it's grounded. It's grounded in, in the swimming pool and the concrete or the rock, whatever it is. And so you see, that's like the ultimate starting point. And so even though you're standing on the diving board and you're looking down the knowledge that that's connected to something comes with that knowledge of you standing on the tip of a, of a diving board there. And so uh, you're saying that, um, and, and Van Til would say, and that reading of Romans one would say that uh, it's because you've suppressed the truth of the triune God that you have this problem of the one in many. Is that, is that fair to say? That's right. And that, that leads me to my next point. When I say, what does it mean to say that Trinity solves the problem of the one in the many? Mm -hmm. What it, what it, what it does, uh, what he does, and it should be really clear, it's not what it does merely as an idea. It's what he who is the triune God does. Amen. Um, he alone can speak to us with clarity about why this awesome thing 
which is the overlap of the one and the many. He's the only one who can say why this awesome thing has become a problem for us as opposed to a constant, never-ending, never-disappointing delight, hmm. which is what it would have been as Adam and Eve went about um, you know, taking dominion of the earth had they not rebelled from God. And the reason why this becomes a problem now is that when we attempt to begin our thinking without conscious submission to the one God in whose image we were made, who we know from the very beginning of our being, and, and apart from whom we were never meant to think one thought, take one step, make one motion, much less have one goal. When we try to live our lives in rebellion to him, this one in the many dynamic in reality becomes a fatal problem, a terrible, terrible evil that we're constantly faced with, the sort of thing that can lead Buddhist philosophers to say that, 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 that uh, salvation is essentially an exit from this, this nasty sort of existence in which we find ourselves. Um, and, and countless other philosophers to come to, to similar sorts of conclusions yet in radically different ways. Um, the reason why we got here is because we started attempting to live our lives with our own vision of the world as our guiding light. Well, constantly suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness, constantly doing violence to him and injustice to him and living a life of ingratitude to him. Hmm. And so what we do is we say, you know, part of part of the, the manner in which the, the, the Trinity is this is solution is that he has spoken to us with such crystal clarity in his word about how we got ourselves in this mess. You quit taking directions from me, your, your loving creator and father, and you had, had start, started taking directions from malignant spirits trying to interpret yourself and understand yourself in light of the material realm. And hence all of the fetish gods of, you know, polytheistic religion from the beginning, you know, looking to animal creations for guidance and a sort of insight into ourselves, um, engaging in, you know, sub animal behaviors, you know, all sorts of pagan ritual, you know, associated with these things. This is because we don't have a vision of a God above ourselves that we're willing to submit to and to listen to and to hear his guidance about here's how to make the good life for yourselves. And in fact, we're utterly incapable of doing so because we've corrupted ourselves in the sin in which we, we live and exist. So that's the second sense. You know, the Trinity explains why the world is marked by university, unity and diversity. It's, it's formed after the fashion of himself. Two, the, the Trinity in his special revelation explains why the one many problem is a problem. But if you, uh, did you have any questions about number two? Well, not a question, just the way you put it, uh, you can tell that you're a pastor because it's, it's so uh, applicable, which is great. It's just it made me so sad, man. We just mentioned that, you know, we were never meant to operate this way. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's at the same time, terrifying. And just so, so sad because yeah. it's terrifying because now we're children walking in the dark, trying to figure out our own way. That's mm -hmm. that hor that's horrifying. Uh, mm -hmm. It's really, really scary. And then the other part is so sad is like we were meant to have this father walking us, uh, walking alongside of us, holding our hand, saying, this is this, this is this. Oh, what do you make of this? Just like he did with Adam. He brought all the animals in front of him. Hey, what should we call this one? What should we call that one? That's that's the 
divine human relation that's supposed to be. And we don't do that. We ran away and we spit in his face and we give him the middle finger every day. And we say, I'll do this. I'll do this. And we have very sharp uh, reason. Van Til talks about um, not all of us, right? But some of us have very sharp reason. And it's like a buzzsaw, but it, it cuts sharp, but it's set in the wrong settings. And right. so we use this tool of reason as if it's this ultimate thing to figure out reality instead of a tool by which we're supposed to uh, reinterpret God's uh, divine revelation. And just just the way you said that, man, was just so sad. And it's just such a reminder that we need the gospel. Uh, yeah. We we need to get back to our father. We need to get back you know, through the son and the power of the Holy Spirit. We need mm-hmm. to be connected to God because that's what we we're made to do. Ah. That's right. That's right. No, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, I'll say this too, you know, I think Vantillians especially need to uh, develop more of an appetite for reading existentialist philosophers in light of Vantill. They, mm. they, they don't need to read more existentialist philosophers and simply drink in um, what would just be, you know, one more poisonous beverage um, in addition to, you know, the entire, uh, project of, you know, uh, Greek philosophy. But I just say this because existentialist philosophers, and I'm thinking obviously, of you know, the beginnings in, in, in Nietzsche and, um, you know, but, but even into Sartre and Heidegger, they, they had a sense of just the sheer dread and darkness of the, the human condition that I mean, I, I just hate to say it, like the, the, the you know the new atheists and you know the, they just they, they, they don't. I mean, it's like I, one gets the feeling that the new atheists are like men sitting in a car that's going off a cliff and and listening to you know some consoling music and or just you know saying, well, I mean that's yeah that's where we're headed. Whereas the existentialist is at least in the backseat freaking out about about where where they're headed. And with just this overwhelming sense of need to make meaning uh, for this this existence that is in just such a dark, dark place when interpreted from the godless perspective of of, um, of just out and out atheism, and that dread is something that we have got to to have explored in some sense. How 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 the unbeliever who's at least talking about that dread is trying to deal with it. And we've got to bring to bear something of just how utterly dreadful and sad and, and dark the condition of man really is, as opposed to talking to a cold, you know, almost computer-like atheist. I mean, one feels like with, with Richard Dawkins, uh, what was said of Darth Vader, it could be said of him that he's more machine now than man. He's <laughs> lost most of his humanity to this, I mean, what, what could possibly be inspiring, you know, I mean, and I've, I've read his, you know, greatest show on earth and um, it really does seem more like a circus show that, that has no real point. As, <laughs> I mean, it's more true to the title than you think. So I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is where we're at. We are just these lost, hopeless. I mean, when we look at people in this world who are maybe born into the world without parents and in just utter poverty and without hope to have a life that, um, you know, uh, even meets the, the worldly standards of, um, of the good life. That really is the, the more accurate picture of all of humanity. 
It's exactly the way God describes Israel in Ezekiel 16. It's just a baby left out for dead in their blood that he reaches down and picks up and redeems and places in a relationship with himself. That is the picture of humanity. But this leads us to the third point about the, the third sense in which the Trinity solves the one of many problem. It shouldn't be surprising to us once we see that, that the creation is made in the image of, of the triune God and hence is marked by university, unity and diversity. Um, when, we, when we see that the, the reason that became a problem is because of our rebellion from the triune God, um, the only way out of this mess is by the sovereign uh, condescension of God in God the Son, um, who obeys his Father perfectly, fulfilling the law that we have broken, that we have so um, tarnished and trampled underfoot, and that he, 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 he suffers the penalty, the infinite penalty that we deserve, and he does that in our stead. And that it's not even enough that the Son of God did this on our behalf as our um, you know, atoning sacrifice, but even our capacity to embrace it can only be accomplished through an equally divine work of regeneration in, in, in God the Spirit, that the only way out of this mess is really for the arms of the triune God to wrap around us in the Son and the Spirit, um, you know, by the direction of the Father to bring us back into union with himself. And um, that, that the result of that is that we have this awesome hope of being part of a fellowship in a society that's not merely human, um, but with the triune God himself for eternity, where um, our individuality is not in any measure or degree diminished or violently thrust into a cookie cutter shape. It's rather magnified and shined upon, not just once, not just for a moment, but infinitely and for eternity with a freshness that never ends, but also with a security and a confidence that what comes next is only going to be better and deeper and more meaningful. Um, no, no sort of God, even on the surface of it, has the, um, has the uh, credentials to make such promises. But, you know, in my favorite probably probably my favorite passage of the Bible in, in Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, just this incredible language of, you know, let them be one as we are one, yeah. I and them, yeah. and you and me, and this just profound unity between God and men affected in, in, in Christ and in, in his incarnation and in his work on the cross and his resurrection. Um, that is, th those are the senses in which the Trinity solves the one many problem. Note the sense in which he solves the one many problem is not, that he renders it perfectly lucid to us right. just how yeah. the one and the many can perfectly overlap and represent one another and, and meaningfully interact with one another. It, if that were this, if he were just an idea who helped us put, put these challenging ideas in their proper place, um, first of all, he really wouldn't be a solution at all. We would just be dealing with ideas and We've already talked about the, the fact that universals cannot solve the problem of concrete universals or the one in the many. They're part of it. He is a living person, totally self-aware to himself, and he can solve this problem because he is the source of it, and he can speak and tell us how it can no longer be problematic, and that's you know by the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and our acceptance of him, and he solves it as an absolute person. Mm -hmm. That's the sense in which he solves it. 
Yeah, I love yeah. that. And, oh, uh, we keep going there. No. Okay. Yeah. That that's so fantastic. Um, there's so many things. Oh man, I love it. But it's like there's um there's a matching of mysteries. We we say okay, there's this mystery of the one and many, uh, in that we find here in the world, and then we also find the same exact mystery in the Trinity. And so, uh, as you were saying, which I think is really helpful about the concrete universal, if we understood the Trinity, then we'd be able to solve. We'd have we'd be able to solve this problem and say, here's exactly how this interacts. But in order to solve, uh, in order to fully comprehend the Trinity, we'd have to be like a member of the Trinity, uh, one of the persons of that. We'd have to exist in God, or uh, ad intra. And so that's not that's not going to happen. That's that's to deny the creator creature distinction. But it's not an it's not an arbitrary just pushing back mystery into the mind of God and there it stays safe. We we have an explanation for it. it comes from our rich trinitarian tradition of you know really a true Christianity and saying, "Hey, look, this theological answer has been here the entire time. The problem we the reason we've been spinning our wheels is because we've been suppressing our knowledge of this God." And so now here we are, but this isn't yep. a an ad hoc answer that we came up with in the lab. This has been here the whole time in, in acknowledging God, and and we can't even really, as Calvinists, we can't uh, take claim for it because we don't we didn't discover this ourselves. We say He came and illumined us, and He came and redeemed us. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. All of those things are tied together. You know, I'll, I'll put it this way as well. What I find people want, I mean, what philosophers for ages have wanted, is they want an impersonal idea. That can help them explain everything, gain mastery of everything. And if we could have this impersonal idea that perfectly represented the Trinity, you have to understand that would mean that ideal reality was bigger than and capable of containing and circumscribing and, and uh, in a sense, governing God himself. Yeah, there'd and, be a universal and, above the concrete universal. That's right. He has, to, he has to correspond to that. Yeah, and, and he would be subject to that universal, like we are subject to ideas and atheistic thinking or, or pure logic or whatever it may be. And he would then only be subject to the problem that we're subject to hmm. saying, how do I get unity and diversity in reality? So what we're looking for, what, we're, what we've been expending our whole philosophical lives in the Western tradition for 2,500 years trying to do would not be a solution if we found it. It would be the opposite of a solution. It would be the sort of thing that left us in timeless, uh, left uh, made timeless universals the reality, and Parmenides would be right, and the world in which we live would be an illusion, and we'd be all really confused, and 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 it wouldn't be satisfying. And so what we're what we're saying then is that in fact it would. It's not, we're not just saying that we have this trying God that solves everything and um, we're just going to appeal to him and, and that's all there is to it. And it's a way of shirking the big problem. It's a way of exposing the big problem. The big problem is that we ever sought lifeless, impersonal answers to things when we're made in the image of the infinite, personal, living God. And nothing is going to satisfy the sort of li the personal life that we're intended to live. Uh, with all of its freshness and security, but that sort of God who, um, who, who made us in his image. And so, so and you also mentioned, you know, it's, it's not haphazard that we're Calvinists and we believe, you know, this particular doctrine of God and 
we, we have a Calvinistic view of salvation. I mean, here's the problem. If the very manner by which you and I laid hold of Christ was itself the fruit of some sort of cosmic randomness, to begin with, we would then be giving to cosmic randomness the power to save equal to or or in conjunction with or alongside of God's uh, timeless, and you'd really even say abstract offer of salvation, which sat there as like a, a mere lifeless possibility, but had to be collided with universal, um, again, cosmic chance. That right there would place God and us and everyone back in the same one many problem. We are fundamentally denying that there is anything like cosmic mindless chance going on in reality. And we're fundamentally denying that human decisions can be understood as or even described as sheer randomness like that. If, if we really do believe that the triune God is the maker and creator of everything who knows all things by knowing himself, whatever our human freedom is um, that makes consequential such that we make consequential decisions for ourselves and others, whatever it is, um, it is not beyond the sovereign purposes of God. In fact, it really can't even be a meaningful product of us and yet a surprising, surprising product from us unless it is itself an analog of the triune creator. And in that sense, ultimately in a mysterious sense, subject to him. Yeah. So yes. Well, I, I love that answer. And um, it's really helpful even, even uh, as you're th helping me think through this uh, just to, to be careful. Well, you, you, you brought up this uh, before uh, in your book about abstract reasoning. And now I think I'm, I'm really starting to get it about, being careful not to make universals where there are persons there. And, and it's, it's exactly what John does in John one, where he's saying, um, and I know it's debated whether he's intentionally writing to the Greeks as well as uh, the Hebrews. You can make this case that, you know, he's, he's using the word logos in Greek because that matches the the Hebrew for, you know, God spoke by his word and stuff. And I think, he's, I think D.A. Carson says he's probably doing both. Uh, because the, the Stoics and the Greeks at the time looked at this Logos principle. And so I see it as the same thing. Hey, look, you want this abstract Logos principle, you Greeks. You like that? Yeah, it's this abstract thing that's guiding everything, but it's not a person. Well, the, the problem that you have is that it, he is a person. And this Logos principle that you talk about is a person who took on flesh and came into reality. His name is Jesus, and he died for your sins. And same, likewise... You're, you philosophers are looking for this abstract uh, principle by which we can make sense of unity and diversity. He is Yahweh. He is a Trinitarian God. And so it's the same, it's the same answer to the same type of abstract uh, reasoning. And I think a big problem is that's not satisfying to the autonomous mind. I, I want That's the idea right. and I want them the formula and I'll discover it. I'll put it on my blackboard and then we'll look really awesome. That's part and of it, man. I don't want to super, you know, there's all different reasons, but that's part of it. And I want to control it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is this sort of control that man wants to arrest from God. We, we, you know, bit the fruit with the aim of becoming like God and having a sort of sovereign control over ourselves and over our thinking and all of these things in, in reality. And, you know, here's the, here's the thing. I, I would even know that our idea of God is, is triune and concrete universal it really 
it expounds in the greatest depths, you know, the, the revelation of the divine name is I am. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about a concrete universal, it's someone saying, I, I want to be who I am. And when you're an abstract universal, you're kind of not who you are because all of the things you did really weren't you. They're, they're, your soulless, your, your impervious, eternal soul doesn't do anything. So in a sense, you aren't, you can't really say I am who I am. Um, and likewise, if you're a con, you know, just a concrete ball of mass doing things, you're different every second. And you really can't say I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Well, God preeminently and absolutely can say I am who I am, which implies both that he is the living God and hence has these infinite moments of the triune circumcision and uh, also that he, he is an identity all through that. And so in a certain respect, you know, the divine name revealed, you know, in um, the baptismal formula, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the most profound sense in which God is who he is. He really is um, these three concrete, uh, particular persons co-eternally. And, and, and we need particularity and diversity to have a meaningful is of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so when we speak of God in that fashion, I I just... I think it's ironic because, you know, in the God delusion, which I have not read, but I've heard, uh, I've heard Dawkins, Dawkins is painful to read, but I've heard Dawkins talk about um, many times. He, he frequently talks about how the, the solution to human origins, to the universe, to you name it, cannot be more complicated than the problem itself. Yeah. He'll yeah. frequently say that. And it's got, and it was ironic to me is that he's, he, he clearly is not working with any conception of uh, the, the, the biblical attribute of God of divine simplicity. Right. Yeah. It, you know, what we're saying is that, you know, when man asks, it's the classic line of question from kids, you know, why, why X? Well, the answer is Y. Well, why, why? Well, the answer is Z and Y, Z and, and going on and on and on. Well, for us as Trinitarians, the end to that line of questioning of why is the simple self-identical God who can answer for himself and can literally say, because me, Mm. because I am who I am. I am not part of this chain of, you know, uh, development, nor am I lifeless. I am the living self-complete God. And our answer to that, 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 um, series of questions of, of why is the God who says, I am who I am, who is absolutely simple in himself. And there, you know, to go about searching for any other answer than him is to go about searching for, in many respects, a more complex and more contrived answer. This is the God who's been speaking to us from the beginning of time and in whose music, you could say, and whose singing we've lived out all of our days trying to shut that voice out. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I, I love that uh, God is the the ultimate. Uh, uh, the buck stops with God. He's the the end answer. And again, that's not an ad hoc. Well, we can't go any further. We just made this up. That that also comes from our theology. It comes from uh, using our our reason, but also from from revealed revelation. God is say uh, He's of Himself. He has self existence. He is absolute. You know, and uh, I know there's this huge debate. I just uh, had a theologian on about simplicity and we're all over the map on it and stuff, but um, everyone wants to say that God is, is self-existent 
and that he's absolute. And really, that's what a lot of uh, simplicity uh, people holding to simplicity want to affirm. And they say you can't affirm that without simplicity. But God is the the a buck stops with God. God is the end answer, and He explains your why question. Him being an absolute person explains how you can be a person asking me another person this question. And if he's just this absolute inert thing, if he's a Unitarian God, then how do we explain him? How do we explain us talking right now? How do we explain that type of thing making us that impersonal, you know, uh, absolute, that impersonal thing? How do we explain that? Well, the fact that you can even ask why shows that he must be personal. Right. Or you might say, within what context can there even be a contrast between me and him? Mm. What? context can contain him and me such that there is a contrast between us and a real relationship between us. This is the one in the many problem. Yet again, you have a diversity of participants and yet one context that contains them and facilitates their communication. Well, our ready answer as Trinitarians is that we can have a, a, a contrast between us and God and a context in which we both communicate because God is at once contained by himself and containing himself in the three persons of the Trinity. And so, I mean, this is, this is literally the way that the Bible speaks. I mean, we pray to God in, in the name of Christ. We are in Christ. We have, um, he's the doorway to the father. I mean, he's dis- described in quite literally all of these terms in these uncanny ways. I mean, it, I mean, it's a proof in itself. I mean, to think just, the sheer profundity of the doctrine of the Trinity and its relevance to all things. And yet being produced by these, you know, apostles who, I mean, they just, they met and walked with him and, and, and spoke the truth about him. And, and yet the implications of what they write is so vast and so profound in realms of philosophy um, that you could say we're way beyond them, but, but divine revelation. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, when we talk about God as absolute and, we, we keep going back with the questions or even back in time. We go, what's before that? Or what's the reason for that? You know, we have a God who can say, when you ask what's before me, I'm before myself and I'm after myself. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And, you know, in the Trinitarian doctrine, you know, what do we have? But the eternal generation of the son. And that there is this sort of, I go about discussing this in, in my book, but there is a, there's a sort of the archetypal time. Uh, as we speak about past, present, and future, there's this triplicity to time, but there is an obvious unity in in time. Uh, you know th- th- that is itself a, a, a an effect of in a um, you know something that points back to the Trinity, where we have the eternal generation of the Son and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. There is this sort of one, two, three going on, and it's not to say again that you know the Son's being is from the Father. Right. Um, but that his, his his personal position within the Trinity, um, and um, and again, it's not that the Spirit's being you know is is derived from the Father and the Son, but He goes forth from them. And in a sense, this is the 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 archetypal time. And so I talk in in, in my thesis or my book about how Kant made so much of you know in his Antinomies of Pure Reason that you know you 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 end in pure contradiction if we say that time has an absolute beginning. Or we say that time goes on forever. And what we really ought to say as Trinitarians is that time is preceded by a different type of time, Trinitarian time. Mm, I'm so uh, glad you said that. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's really what we ought to be saying. We, yeah. we, and yeah. we ought to say that, that 
But that's the, the solution to the problem that we don't have this bizarre moment before all moments. And we also don't have a never ending succession of the moments that we know. But we have the, the absolute life of the triune God revealed to us in scripture and the one who says he can give us eternal life if we would believe in his son. And so so our time is analogous to God's intra-Trinitarian intra uh, time that comes from his, you know, interpersonal dialogue. Yeah, and, and yeah. That's, that's how we ought to think of it. That's the better way to think of it. Um, and, and again, it's, it's the atmosphere within whom we live and move and have our being. Um, there's there's um, this absolute God and his reality, which is... Um, the lone context in which the, this island of our time can float and be distinct from him and be real and be meaningful, um, but never be self-contained mm-hmm. and self-explanatory. Oh man, this, this is so good. I love, uh, I love talking with you because we're able to go deep into that stuff. And then we go back to like a, a doxology on us because uh, this, we believe it, man, this is awesome. It seems like, this Christian worldview, you know, f- centered on the Trinity instead of hiding from the Trinity opens up life. It also gives us limiting concepts. So, yeah, we're not going beyond what God has spoken. We're trying not to, not to speculate. But um, so we're, we're getting we're we've been going for a while here, which is fantastic. I wanted to lay out Van Til's uh, uh, TA as you have uh, formulated just because people listening might do exactly what you did when you first read, read Van Til. Where's the argument? Right. And so uh, I, I pulled it from your book here. Premise one, every inference and act of predication presupposes the existence of absolute and personal harmony of unity and diversity within the triune God. Two, denials that the Trinity exists are acts of predication. Therefore, three, the triune God exists. So uh, every, if, Every inference needs this this unity and diversity, this relation between unity and diversity, which, uh, which you and Van Til and you know good Van Tillians will argue depends on this Trinitarian God, and so even to deny that the Trinity exists is to predicate, which uh, therefore presupposes uh, this this relation, which presupposes the Trinity. So therefore, the Triune God exists even in your denial of the Triune God. Right. Yeah, your denial of the Triune God. It presupposes and implies that the triune God exists um, because what we're, what we're coming to the table saying, I mean, what, I guess one of the more simple ways to think of this is just when you ask the skeptical question, how do I know that my mind or my senses make genuine contact with contact with reality as it actually is? Yeah. Um, you, you see the conundrum. I mean, unless you can construct as Descartes attempted a strictly rational proof, again, that's kind of, the ideal attempting to reach out into the world of the real that that it makes real contact there um you can see that there's there's really no way to say that you're not in the matrix and to get out of that hmm. um and so that's what predication involves it involves ascribing qualities properties relations to um things anything yes. um to arguments ideas you name it and so to, to naming your dog, right? So Scruffy is a dog. That's predication. The the is is that the copula right there. And so Scruffy, this particular, you know, copula right. uh, is, and then uh, universal dog. Right. You could go into all of the platonic dialogues of like, what do you really mean when you say Scruffy is a dog? Is that that you know 
uh, all things identical with scruffy are identical with the uh, ideal form of dog, in which case all dogs are scruffy and you're in this weird place and, and you're right in this place of, of unity and diversity having to somehow interact. And in a way that even Plato had the sense to say, I am not capable of explaining fully how this is possible. Mm -hmm. So once we've admitted that at the end of the day, by our own mere efforts, not one of us can explain how unity and diversity overlaps, how subjects can really make real contact with objects. Once we admit we can't explain that, that's capitulation to the triune God right there because we're still talking about it, trying to explain it, still presupposing that it's even meaningful to say we can't explain it. And we're going to say, let me tell you what you're presupposing that the whole time you're presupposing the triune God who you've known since the day you were born. You live with a daily confidence that cannot be explained on the basis of any of your professed beliefs. You live with such unquestioned confidence that you even think to tell me that, in fact, it is meaningless to attempt to explain the one many problem, all the while living and breathing and acting as if those words are a meaningful thing to communicate to me because there is unity between us, despite our diversity and difference of opinion at the moment um, about what ultimate reality is. And we're going to say, there's actually a name for what you're presupposing all the time. And it's not a what it's a who mm. only who's give you confidence like that. Yeah. And you can yeah. say, no, they don't. But then again, I would just tell you, how do you know that they don't? And even how do you know that your words have meaningful application to reality? And then you go, well, yet again, I have to admit that I don't know, or you'll have to have some contrived philosophy that you develop in the moment. But at the end of the day, um, we're saying there's no way out of this conundrum that you're in. You are constantly racking up uh, acts of disobedience and sheer rebellion as you live every day presupposing what only the triune God can and does supply and never give him acknowledgement for it. You vehemently deny that you know him. You vehemently deny that um, that he's, he's necessarily done anything for you. Um, and so that, that leads us straight into the gospel when we make that argument. And that's where the argument even itself is just, it's just sitting by itself is, is not an appropriate thing. I mean, at, at the end of the day, we have to immediately advance into, you know, the clear speech of the triune God and his word um, that there's redemption in Christ. And um, so we always end with the father, the son, and the Holy spirit and the good news of the gospel. Um, and, and I always like to emphasize that. I mean, I think uh, it, it kind of bugs me when I, when public debates go on and the transcendental argument is employed and 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 an outright gospel call isn't um, a part of that. And I realize in a public debate, it's it's hard to get to those things. Um, yeah. I've only done one public debate, um, and and just really mainly because of just how um, the ministry and you know four kids and whatever writing I, I, I want to do. And especially as a Presbyterian minister, you have committees and right. Presbyterian right. and all that. It's you like podcasters hitting you up, trying to get your time. I actually, I actually appreciate it more than you guys might think because a, I have no technical skill whatsoever. So I, I would never craft something like this on my own. And then I can just show up and leave and <laughs> I handle, um, you know, whatever sort of editing you intend to do or yeah. you name it. Yeah. All right, yeah. Thanks. Uh, so, so I, I wanted to finish with, and I, I appreciate that gospel point, man. That's huge. I don't want to overlook that. That's fantastic. And there is a way that you can do this. Uh, 
because it's so unifying of our ideas and thoughts, you can use it to to try and bully people. You can use it to confuse people by dragging them into one and many without making it practical, without bringing it back down. Uh, you can do it in a way to make yourself feel really smart without you know glorifying God, without while still using you know uh, autonomy, abstract reasoning, brute facts, missing the point that it's. He revealed himself and he is the one that we're supposed to be preaching and magnifying. And he is the one, you know, through Christ and the gospel of God, that's, that's the message we're supposed to be sharing. And the, the transcendental argument is a tool towards that end and not the end in itself. Uh, even though we would say that, that the, the conclusion and really uh, what undergirds each premise and our reasoning through each premise is the Trinity in whom we live and, and move and have our being. I, I wanted to move uh, to, to close on, we, we've been talking against autonomy, abstract reasoning, which, which you call the unholy Trinity uh, in place yeah. of the, the Trinity, uh, un, or brute facts, abstract reasoning, and human autonomy. And I, I wonder if some of our listeners are thinking about, what about the laws of logic uh, or yeah. the laws of thought? However, you're uh, using that term, you know, uh, identity, contradiction, excluded middle. Aren't these abstract? Uh, aren't, isn't this? Uh, aren't these abstracta that we need every day in life to think? Uh, yeah. How does the Trinity uh, interact with uh, the laws of thought? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, and that's right. I mean, the, the laws of logic, I mean, if you're going to jumble it in with the unholy Trinity, they belong to the, you know, abstract universals. I mean, they're the laws of, of, of logic are in thought are the sorts of things that are supposed to uh, be the um, sort of relations that exist between those, um, those ab- abstract universals. And so it's, I mean, if it, each, if each abstract universal is like a leaf on a tree, then, you know, the, the laws of logic are supposed to be something like a structure that um, it defines their relations. But yeah, we absolutely do need the laws of thought. We do need the laws of logic. We simply have to realize as Trinitarians that those things are, are created. Those are creatures. Um, It's not creatures and they're not living things, but they're, they're created things. Um, And that's a really important point. That means that these laws of thought, um, because they're, they're made by God and we're made in the image of God. And they're so essential to who we are as persons. They can help us to know God truly, but they can't help us to know God exhaustively or to completely uh, circumscribe him and draw a circle around him with our ideas or have one big idea that can totally and perfectly and exhaustively explain or, 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 or um, make sense of him. Um, they, they represent him analogically and we can know him truly through that because he tells us so and he gives us the greatest assurances of it. And we'd never have any reason to doubt it had we not sinned. Mm-hmm. The only reason we doubt it is because of all the, the nastiness in the world and the confusion that's here. But that is a, a major difference between how we are compelled to think as uh, Bible-believing, self-consistent Trinitarians, um, that our laws of thought are created. And um, they're not identical. They're not the same substance with um, God. And it's funny because we have so much more trouble, I find, um, accepting that idea than accepting the idea, for example, that the material realm can't contain God. It's not as if God's far Mm -hmm. off space. Um, 
and his essence is circumscribed by space somewhere. And he's just so much bigger than the Milky Way galaxy. And that's what, what it's like. Um, no, the material realm does not contain God. Now, it can represent him truly. And that's why he, he does indeed incarnate. And it's not wholly other as Karl Barth would have us believe in, in obscuring him all the time and at yeah. every point. And, and the incarnation isn't a dialectical you know, miracle of God becoming identical with his opposite or something like that. That's not what, what happened because the world is, is made analogically to, to, re- to reveal God truly, but never exhaustively. Um, yeah. And yeah. the same is true with our laws of thought. Well, so I think, I think uh, initially people are, are, having a problem with that holy otherness that, that Bart would bring up. So if these laws of logic, which we, which philosophers um, would say are, you know, uh, necessarily true, they're true in every possible world. If these things don't apply to God, then we see the, the, the charge of uh, voluntarism. So God could have made a different world or actuated a, a different possible world where a circle is a square or where, you know, he's not held to his word and, and he could command divine or he could command rape and that'd be a good thing. Right. And you, you run in kind of like the Euthyphro dilemma stuff. Um, so uh, let's see, where do I want to go? Um, yeah, well, I mean, let me, let me yeah. just say a few things to that. I mean, so yeah, here's, here's the problem is that, I mean, again, people are, are living in the world and trying to think in the world of the dichotomy of the one and the many and they're going, when I say the laws of thought are created, they're taking it as if, um, ergo, they're not abstract universals. Therefore, they must be totally random, totally voluntaristic productions, you know, that, that God could just totally bend this way and that. Whereas what I'm saying is that he made these things to represent himself truly, yes. but not exhaustively. And um, therefore, I'm neither saying that they're abstract universals such that our, our reason is identical with divine, the way that God knows and, and reasons in himself, um, nor are they utterly equivocal would be the other way to describe it. They're analogical through and through. And the only one who can give us any confidence that they truly represent him, much less that our laws of thought truly represent a world that is so utterly different from our laws of thought being material and our laws of thought being again, apparently not is the triune God himself. Who's the maker of them both. Hmm. So it doesn't follow that God could make a world in which squares are circles and circles are squares or something like that, because those two terms are germane, germane to this creation that he did make. They're germane to this reality that he did make with the system of principles and laws, which are very meaningful within this world and, and system and principles. And to talk about what a circle would be in a in a world totally unlike ours is pretty well meaningless. Um, those terms have meaning in this world. They're stable in this world because God made them to have stable meaning and contrast and comparison. And uh, for that whole universe of thought and universe of material and reality that we know to be a means through which we may know him truly. Um, so, so, so those things don't follow, but I, I do find that they, they, they're, it's an instance of just falling right back into the sort of one in many dilemma that the trying God is supreme and sovereign over. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And I, I actually, I've, I've heard this charge before. Uh, well, I hear it all the time, but uh, 
Van Til talks about this in Intro to Systematic Theology, and he, he talks about the laws of logic being created things that represent God's yeah. very own nature. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I, I like the the idea of grounding the laws of uh, thought or logic in God's mind as divine ideas about other ideas, uh, but which corresponds to his very own nature. And so it's not a platonic uh, universal above God, which God has to look to and correspond with himself. No, his nature is the self-consistency, which uh, which is the truth uh, maker of the truth bearers, which are the laws of thought. And so they're true yeah. and they're, they're created, but they represent him such that, so this, maybe we might be different on this, but I would say that he... He couldn't have made like a square circle even in a different world that he chose to create because he's consistent. And for him to have this idea of square and idea of circle, uh, he doesn't contradict himself. And so for him to make laws that would contradict his thoughts would is impossible for him. Yeah. What I would just point out is I just point out square and circle are two terms that only have meaning within the universe of language and the universe of, of, for, of things in this creation. Mm. So. When I'm talking about a different world, you know, here's the thing. It's like when you and I think right now, what if we thought about shapes like we think of colors? We only have, you know, so many colors that we can see. But I guess to me, it's just not inconceivable that God could create an utterly different color. Hmm. And what I'm saying about shapes is that God could create utterly different shapes, utterly different shapes. And that's just a bizarre thought right there. <laughs> so I mean, bizarre. Because, you know, what we're talking about, again, you know, when I say shapes, I'm talking about the sphere of, you know, uh, first one-dimensional, two-dimensional, three-dimensional reality. And even right now you have people who contemplate, you know, other dimensions beyond that. And you 14, name it. yeah, all sorts of craziness. Yeah, and here's here's my, my, my uh, undying frustration with the possible world sorts of philosophies is that, again, it implies that there's this static realm of possibility perhaps with an infinite number of variations. What I'm saying is that God creates possibility. The, the, the sorts of possibilities that you're contemplating right now as possibilities are all actually just variations on this actuality of the world we live in right now. Uh -huh. But this world was created ex nihilo out of nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm talking about God creating worlds with categories that are radically different than the categories that we have. I mean, that's what I think we have to be, be meaning when we talk about creation ex nihilo. I guess I would just say to someone in these possible possible worlds that you're talking about, in which of them does it ever make sense to talk about something coming out of nothing? Where does, is that possible at all? Hmm. And then what do you mean then when you're talking about, here's what the, uh, the range of possible worlds would be. It's like, no, the very beginning of this world, which is kind of the framework from which you're beginning to talk about possibility, is itself something that came into being out of nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that is a basic <laughs> that is a basic mystery that I, I kind of feel like when you're talking about possible worlds, you're talking about a manipulation of this world. That's all you're talking about. Mm. But this world is an ex nihilo world, and I just. I'll just again say, you know, this is where I, my, my general frustrations enter, you know, with just the lack of reading in, in you know, Hegel, Hegel and Hegelian philosophy. But we, we tend to think of possibility as the, the broader 
bigger thing that contains the actual is like one specification that got realized. Yeah. Realized. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Hegel would say the exact opposite of the is the case in his dialectic. First, you think that way, but then you think about the actual, and you go, in fact, every possible world that these people are talking about is nothing at all but a modification of this world based on the principles in this world. In a sense, the actual world we're living in right now contains as fantasies all of these possible worlds as like possible stories that could be written in a book, written by Stephen King, put down on paper. But it's actually this actual thing that gives rise to all of these things that you you think of as possibilities in these abstract senses. And so, and, and once we've, we've come to the conclusion, this actual thing is itself created ex nihilo. I, what I'm trying to say is that God creates possibility as we know it. He doesn't simply pick from the possibilities that we can conceive of. Um, but I will say this, Parker, it's getting late in my time zone. I imagine it's even later in your <laughs> It's a little bit and, later, yeah. And I did tell my wife I'd be home before 10 o'clock. So yeah. uh, maybe we could uh, maybe we could wrap wrap it up <laughs> yeah yeah definitely dude thank you so much for all your time thanks for uh thanks for this book this has been yeah. huge thanks for uh you definitely give me some more stuff to chew on here um yeah. i'd love to do it again sometime to have you on uh we could we can continue this line of thought we could talk about um your your idea of trinitarian knowledge we could go into how you conceive of uh the laws of thought and logic from a trinitarian uh perspective uh you give them some different words and stuff like that different language so, dude, thank uh, Dr. Bossman. Thanks so much for for all your time here. Thanks for your yeah. work, uh, and uh, I'd love to to have you on the podcast uh, in a future time. I mean, I, I definitely hit me up. There's a good chance I, I'll be able to do that. I'll also, just mention, um, you know, uh, I often bring bring to bear you know different Ventilian insights in my preaching. And if you happen to be in the Seattle area, um, you, we have uh, a church YouTube channel with um, you know sermons, full services, you name it. <laughs> We worship in a boat building factory right now because of coronavirus and it's impossible wow. to work anywhere else. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just wild, man. We're, we're basically a Puritan conventicle meeting um, with a big roll up door. Um, but yeah, con- congregation of 150 people out there. It's pretty cool. But um, yeah, I think it's worth mentioning. Um, uh, we, we've got a lot of guys in our congregation who are pretty deep thinkers. And um, so if you're hungry for this sort of thing, and you actually need some face-to-face uh, communication, um, which we all do. We have faces for a reason. Um, yeah, uh, check it out there. Check out our, our website at www.trinitaschurch.com and uh, our Facebook page. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, man. And again, the, the book is The Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox by Dr. B.A. Bosserman. Uh, we, we could talk about this more, Lord willing, we will, but that's going to have to do it for now as uh, this has been Parker's Pensies and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>